This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, we're privileged to have a conversation with Elisa Berger and Devon LaRosa. Jal, you've been working with both Devon and Elisa for uh, for some time. How would you like to introduce them to our audience? Sure. As you say, Elisa and I have been working together for um, many years now. I can't even remember how it started. I think maybe visiting the New York City High School, or maybe we got introduced by somebody we knew in common, but... Elisa is the sort of like practice based version of my more like academic theoretical approach to deeper learning. So we are often a good uh, pair in uh, working together in professional development or professional learning or whatever it is. Uh, Lisa was the founding principal of the New York City iSchool uh, and the Mott Hall II School, uh, both in New York. Uh, she also worked in the New York City Public School Central Office as the district director of leadership and organizational learning, overseeing 250 schools, even though I'm not totally convinced that she believes that like districts should have a significant role in schools. Uh, she still tried to orchestrate things from that, uh, from that seat. Welcome, Elisa. Thanks, happy to be here. All right, great. And uh, Devon, I, I don't know if he needs any introduction either. Uh, Devon uh, was for a long time the uh, principal of the Follett High School in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, uh, more recently moved to Chicago, uh, where he's the deputy chief of chief of schools for uh, High School Network in Chicago. Uh, Devon, as you all are going to find out, uh, has a huge personality and um, really transforms things in the right direction, as does Elisa, which is why we wanted uh, to bring them together. Devon, welcome. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Um, okay, so we're a month into year three of pandemic schooling. Um, I feel like one one function we can play on this podcast is just uh, help people see a little bit what's going on outside of their context. Like, what can you not see outside your window, but is happening out there in the world that we should be thinking about and responding to and supporting and so forth. So. Devon, maybe I'll start with you, just a kind of open-ended question. Like, as you, I, I understand you visited a bunch of schools in Chicago uh, as part of your new job. Just like, what, what, what sorts of things are you seeing? Like, uh, what kind of shape are the kids in? Um, what's, what's, what are things looking like out there? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the setup. I um, So I do have to just back up and say one thing that I got to start my year off at La Follette as I transitioned my, one of my assistant principals in. So I just had to say, like, from being at the place I had been at as a principal and seeing my own kids and just like, there's a difference, I guess there's a difference in not doing things the way we always had been. If I, and what I mean that is like, we took a break seemingly and seeing each other in relationships, but we tried to patch them back together with virtual connections and it just feels different. It feels like, um, like we're repairing and rebuilding a relationship, right? Um, but I can tell you though, um, I've been to, I think something to the effect of like 25 different schools, including my own, and it's consistent, but I'm gonna tell you like teachers are, are turning over every stone. Um, for example, I was at one school on um, Southeast side of Chicago and 
they're, they're doing this rooted mentoring program where it's peer to peer with some adult mentoring and you opt into it and they're, and they're finding like, what do we have to do? Right. Um, but also it's, it's, it's different, right? Kids are, I mean, I don't know you, I haven't seen you, right? I saw you on a screen or I didn't see you on a screen. Um, and then I remember just being in my own school when I came back, um, not knowing 50% of the kids, right? Like that, that was really tough. Um, and I think, I think this, it's posed many problems of what do we do? How do we do it? Who do we call? And how do we get help? Right? I think it's just like a, a bigger problem. Um, but one that we have to solve, right? So Louisa, if you were still running the iSchool and like this year we're starting, like what sorts of things would you be prioritizing? I think a lot about the moment we're in. Um, and it reminds me of when I'm working with new teachers and we think that the first year of teaching is the hardest year of teaching. And in many ways, I actually think the second year of teaching is much harder because you think it's supposed to be easier and it's still really, really, really hard. Um, and I feel like that's where the teachers I'm interacting with are. They're like, like this was just supposed to be easier. And I know how hard this pandemic teaching is and that makes it so much harder. Um, so I think if I was principal, I would spend a lot of time with my teachers in this, this place of, of healing and sort of acknowledging that and really trying to figure out what we can do to make that better? Like what are the small systems and structures and policies that we can do to help teachers better? And, you know, I believe that, um, you know, learning is symmetrical and the hope is that I would do that work with my teachers. And then my teachers would in turn do that work with the students. Um, this is hard. You know, so many of our kids were out of school for such a long period of time or new to schools. You know, you're not just orienting the, the ninth grade, you're orienting the ninth grade and the 10th grade, possibly the 11th grade, um, that, that that's the work. Are there some things that both of you are seeing um, arising from, from our experiences during the, of educating uh, kids during the pandemic that we want to keep as we move uh, uh, into a post temp, theoretically into a post pandemic period at some point? What are some lessons that we're learning or can you think of something specific that um, that you've learned that you that you'll want to sort of make sure that we keep doing moving forward. Alisa, how about we start with you? This doesn't totally answer your question, but I think what I'm hearing from teachers in the work I'm doing now with with schools is all around student voice and teachers really saying, wow, kids had a lot more voice in virtual learning and it was really powerful. How do I integrate that more into my classroom? How do we create principals saying, how do we create schools where we're really honoring student voice and, and parent and family voice that was so much louder during, during remote learning uh, and hybrid learning? Um, and so I'm doing a lot of work supporting uh, teachers and schools with that. And I think, I think that's great. I mean, I obviously really support that. Devon, what, what are you seeing? I want to go back to the like the attending to healing piece. I think that's something that we all were in this together, right? Like you saw my living room, I saw your living room. We were all in this thing together and we missed each other and we missed what we had. And so I think I think Alyssa is 100% right when she says 
like attending to healing, we have to find intentional space and not just by accident. Like here's five minutes at the end of a class or five minutes at the end of a meeting. Let's do some attend to healing. I think like, like you said, as a system or structure, like having conversation around what does that look like? It When we were in front of it, like, or when we were in it, like it made complete sense that we do this formally or informally. But now that it seems like we're coming out of it, um, it like that can get put to the back burner and that can't happen. I think another thing that we had to, we have to hang on to is some of the most creative scheduling where students had a voice and schedulers and everybody came together to like come up with different schedules. And we had um, advisory periods and we had like virtual office hours. I saw some of the most creative scheduling in a pandemic that I've ever seen in my whole life, which I thought was amazing. However, we come back to like brick and mortar is like, where did that go? Right. And so I always remind myself that the school day is iterative, right? And we learned that in a pandemic, like we were running like evening sessions of makeup work at 7 p.m. with teachers and students. And it was great. Like, so we just think of like an artist palette, like the school day can be whatever we want it to be. We learned that from the pandemic, but it's like, seems like when we got back, that may not always be the case, right? So where did that creative scheduling go? Can it come back? And then just recognizing, building in this, this mentoring and this relational opportunities on the front end for students. Like, and not like, we have a problem with this group of kids. No, no, no. Like, let's engage them proactively. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's let's build these relationships that people want, um, not out of a problem, but proactively together. I think those are like the pieces that I think have to be there. Yeah, Rod, can I pick up on that a little bit? You know, when kids were not physically with us, there was a lot of emphasis on like, how can we keep students engaged both during class and in school in general? Can we check in with them? Is this working for them, et cetera? But then like, if a kid physically comes to school and then he, he or she puts his head on the desk or he looks out the window for a period because like, like his or her body is there, but their like spirit is not there. Then we're just like, okay, period's over, like onto the next, like onto the next bunch. And so um, somehow we need to keep that sort of sense that like our job is to listen to kids, understand where they are, help them identify the uh, emotions that they're going through, what they're feeling and give them strategies to deal with those things and manage those things. Um, and it's just, it seems like in person, we just are, like, we're, we're good enough with the fact that their body is there. Um, and I, I don't know, it's hard to get like sort of, numbers on this yet, but I have been sort of canvassing friends who teach in different schools. And, you know, people are telling me like, you know, fights are up, um, you know, uh, reports of sort of potential suicide risks are up. Um, kids just sort of like zoning out are, are up. Uh, experienced teachers are telling me, you know, it's October 15th. Usually there's some like storm and drang in the beginning of the year, but usually it's sort of settled by now. And it's not settled. Um, and so I don't know. I think there's a lot going on be beneath the surface in kids' lives, especially in high poverty schools uh, that, um, you know, we just need to attend to really intentionally. And I wonder whether this is also just speculative, but I wonder whether, you know, most policymakers, their kids go to more affluent schools and at least in the blue states where people believe in science and wear masks and things like that. Um, the, you know, if you're, if you're in a blue state and people are being pretty careful with 
masks and vaccinations and you're in an affluent district, it's quite possible that like COVID is like not that great an issue anymore. Um, and so you're just sort of like unaware of the, you know, the depth of what is happening in, in other places. How, how confident are, are any of you, feel free to jump in, um, that the kinds of experiences that you've just described will, will actually lead to some lasting deep structural change in the, in the, in the grammar of schooling or how we do school or Devon, you were talking about schedules and timetables and, and how fast we went back to normal, uh, whatever normal was and, any confidence that this experience can lead, can open the door to lasting transformational change? Everybody's quietly nodding. <laughs> Could you maybe answer that, like, just, like, very specifically? Like, you know, like, when La Fala came back, like, did the Spanish teachers want the old schedule back because they wanted to see the kids every day? Or, like, what, what, what were the forces that were, like, pushing back against changes? Yeah. So like, I just have to say this, we default to what we know, right? Like if we're walking to the store, we're going to walk the path that we knew the, the whole time, the one that we went to before. And so I think that that plays out in, in schools too, right? We, we go the path that makes the most sense to us that we have the most familiarity with. When we came back to school and, and I'd sent a letter letting everybody know I'd be transitioning out, um, people were, were excited to see their kids. Um, students were excited to be back. Um, but it's like, it, but it takes a true re-entry plan and keeping that up, right? Um, because what we just went through was something completely different and we didn't have a frame of reference for. And so I think um, that momentum that I saw when I was in my own building um, at the beginning of this year, like I know it's there. Um, and we all get there in February, March, like February, March are tough. It's a tough time for educators, right? But but it's that constant reminder of our why and why we got into this that I know it can respark. I know it can be there. And then also we were in a double pandemic, right? Like some, like what happened with race relations, like we can't ignore. And I'm going to tell you, um, my staff wanted to be there and they were for my students. They showed up and showed out right every way they could. And I think, I think that that means a lot. And, and, and I think we have to keep that up. And I, and I think it's really important. Lisa said that, like student voice and listening to students, even if they're not saying anything, they're saying something. And putting that as a high priority, if not the priority, is is what we is what we have to get back to. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that touched on what the question, but I want to just throw that out there too. Thanks, Devon. What are you thinking, Elisa? I agree with everything Devon said, and I would just add, I think I think we have made a shift at least in the blue mask wearing states where I work, um, to really embracing SEL in a totally different way. Um, I think teachers really focused on social emotional learning, not in delivering a curriculum, but in actually engaging with kids and how they were feeling and doing and caring as people um, and saw how powerful that relationship could be to transform the learning experience. And I don't think that learning um, will go away. I think teachers really value that. And it is up to the system to step up and support them in finding the time and the space and the priority to, to continue that. 
and I'm hopeful that some of our teachers with even if the system fails us once again, will continue doing it without that. What does that mean? The two of you are now in, um, Devon, you're in a system level role and Aliza, you work with a lot of folks in systems and Brad, you used to run uh, uh, a system like maybe Brad, maybe I'll start with you on this one. Uh, what, 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 what do you think the implications are for that for folks who are sitting in the district level uh, or network level in some way, sort of su supporting the schools, but not in the schools? I, th I think it's part of the role that I think they need to take on at, at the system dis district or, or system level is uh, being is communicating what happened in schools and communicating those 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 positive changes and watching language about going back to the way it was. Don't worry, parents, we're going to go back to normal. Things will all be back to the way they were um, without reflecting on how, you know, things weren't necessarily super rosy uh, back before. And let's not just go back to, the, to those old ways. So um, hosting a conversation with various constituents in the community around what we've learned, uh, what we want to do differently uh, moving forward, what are the things that we're keeping and the things that we're hospicing. Uh, I think that that role of, of hosting the conversation and, and, being very mindful about the language that uh, system leaders are using um, in terms of how they're talking about uh, the pandemic. In, for example, in terms of you know using the language of learning loss, like nothing happened for the last year and a half, two years during the pandemic. There was no learning. It's all lost time um, is absolutely untrue. Uh, and and really doesn't reflect the work of educators and the work that kids did and and so on. Um, so being really mindful about uh, the language that they're using and using their position to host some conversations um, ab about what we've learned and what and and how that may hopefully help lead us to uh, to a more you know the kind of system that we want for all of our kids. Devon, you're uh, working for uh, CPS. Um, I just wanted to tell you a quick story about uh, CPS. I was. Uh, visiting an uh, IB school in Chicago uh, as part of the research Sarah and I were doing for our book. And we'd been there for, I don't know, maybe three days. And on the third day, a woman like caught up to me in the hallway and she said, you look like nice guys. Like you seem like nice people. So I just wanted you to know like word on the street is your spies for CPS. Uh, and uh, because Chicago was rolling out like wall-to-wall -wall ID. And so they thought we were there to like, I don't know, like see, like, I don't know, like how people were responding to that or something, uh, which just, you know, reflects, I think, the level of distrust people uh, in schools historically have had for CPS in uh, Chicago. Now, Chicago's done a lot of uh, wonderful things, especially around the graduation rate. And there are a lot of positive parts, um, particularly in Janice Jackson's tenure. Um, but, um, you know, how are you going to not become like another one of those, like, you know, distrusted CPS central office people? Hey, I will answer your question, but I first have to ask you a question. I, I just want to be, I just want to be clear. Are, are, you're not a spy, are you? <laughs> All right, cool. My official position right. is I am not a spy. All right, cool. Let's, let's keep the tape rolling then. I just wanted to, I wanted to clarify it. I hold this guy in regard like I hold Jay-Z and, you know, some of my Obama and, 
you know, Beyonce. So, I mean, I just wanted to make sure that I, I hadn't, you know. I'd be a pretty terrible spy if I admitted to it on a podcast. But. Good call on that one. I, but I wanted to get it on the public just so everybody understood. So I think it, it does explain the dark glasses and the big floppy hat that Joe's <laughs> always wearing um, on these podcasts. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to go ahead and keep answering the question. Just keep but keep trying, Devon. Pers- persevere. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, to not be viewed that way i think uh, a page from the book is like doing doing the work and partnering in the work um i think even on like testing day like i remember like act or sat day like going out like if i wasn't proctoring a room stopping by a teacher's room and say hey can i you need to leave for a couple minutes you need something you need to take a break or whatever like but being there truly as a support because i'm going to tell you i've been in um districts where like support people like i'm here to support you well, support me doesn't mean send me 50,000 emails, right? Support me means like help me wade through what that email meant that you were going to send, right? Just by saying, hey, here's what this means. So I think partnering, like getting getting in the work with people, I think helps um, make that go away. And I think that's a real thing. Like, um, you know, walking around with a clipboard or versus like sitting alongside someone and saying, do you want an extra set of eyes and ears on this problem with you? I think that's I think that's a key thing. And Rod, I just want to go back to one thing you had said um, about returning to school. I think it's important that we tell people like different is good, right? Like the some of the things we had been doing, not they were bad, but like different is okay. And I think if we embrace that, that's that's what this is about, right? How can we help students? I'm still stuck on the spy thing, but I'll try to get out of that mindset. Lisa, like, what about when you were managing, I, I, you know, like in business, like span of control is supposed to be like eight, you know, you're supposed to like have eight people who report to you and you're supposed to talk to them frequently. Uh, when you were managing, like, and I think there's a reason for that, right? Like that's the number of people that you can form relationships with, keep up with the details of what's happening to them, et cetera. And uh so I have a question. I sort of understand how relational strategies work for principals. Like bad principals like sit in their offices and good principals are like out in the hallways talking to teachers and, you know, solving problems and, you know, but I, I, it's less clear to me how you do that in a district environment, especially a large one. So, you know, I left the principalship to go work in the central offices because a mentor of mine, Eric Nadelstern, really trying to rethink how district offices were structured to support schools. And it is from him that I came to agree with his belief that we should disband district offices or district offices can be there. They can, you know, have a legal staff and a contract staff, but that's it. Like we don't need it. And everything else, everything like instructional for sure should be devolved to the schools. And, um, and I left the district office and returned to the principalship after that job where I was overseeing 250 schools because I had nothing to do with teaching and learning, right? I mean, it was just my schools were organized into groups of 25. They had one person over them. So I touched those people who touched those, you know, I was so far removed. I, I was doing nothing every day to make uh schools better for kids in New York City. Um, And that's when I went to the principalship. And of course, a principal's key job always is to buffer or bridge with the district. 
but how ridiculous that every principal I talk to spends time buffering and bridging from the district and not just focusing on what is my work with my teachers to make teaching and learning in our classrooms better. So uh, Rod, you're just gonna take that. So <laughs> to our podcast listeners, Rod and Aliza and I work together and supporting a set of 12 districts of which Devon has been part. And Rod and Aliza uh, like to argue about whether they're really, you know, what the role is of the district. So we're just taking that off wax conversation and putting it on wax. Uh, Rod, so like the district, it, you know, legal, maybe some food, possibly transportation, uh, but like, come on, the, like the real running of the schools should be left to the people who are running the schools and who can see uh, the students, assess the context, et cetera. Um, sounds logical. Disagree? Um Somewhat, um, but I, I just want to comment that I've had fun watching Devon's face while Elisa was talking as he's contemplating his career choice of uh, leaving a school principalship and going to central office. Uh, he's seeing his life perhaps flash before his eyes. Um, so you can always go that. back in the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, so I, I both agree and disagree. I think there's lots that schools can be doing around the instructional leadership work around around really focusing on the needs of their students. But there are some economies of scale that I think best happen at, at a district level. I think there's some responsibilities um, that high school that that uh, school principals just don't need to have uh, that districts can take on, um, for example, dealing with uh, collective agreements um, that are you know, un unable to be changed at the school level, um, best managed at the, at the district level, um, all kinds, you know, I don't know that school principals should be debating whether they have a band program or put a new roof on, on the school. Um, yeah, those are real life issues, but you also have to keep buildings. Now I'm watching Elisa's face. Uh, we should really be showing the video of this, of this podcast. Um, you know, is, is that what we want uh, instructional leaders to spend their time thinking about is who's the best contractor to put the new roof on um, on the school or, or should that be devolved off off to district level and um, I think also interfacing with the next tier uh, which is government whatever that is in you know the province or um, or the state um, heaven forbid school principals have to get have to wade into that political uh, morass. Uh, I think uh, district offices can better buffer schools from that from that noise um, done well. And I do think that uh, it makes sense for schools uh, for sets of schools for districts and and perhaps my Canadian perspective is is smaller than the American perspective. When, when I talk district, I'm talking you know 20 schools. 30 schools, which to Devon would be, you know, half of one of his, one of his pods of schools. Um, uh, there's lots you can do, um, I think, instructionally uh, with sort of those kinds of, those kinds of numbers and the kind of leadership you can, you can provide, which lets principals do the main work, which is lead the learning in their buildings. So I'm half agreeing with Elisa. Devon and Lisa, what do you think about the sort of uh, co-principal model? The kind of like instructional leader and then, because in a sense, the principal job evolved from like 
the modal principal like 25 years ago was a former gym teacher. Uh, and the, like, I learned that at some point I was like, really? And, uh, the, the, and the reason for that is I think the job was basically like political. You just like, you know, you, you smile and you show up and you meet with the parents when they get upset. And, uh, you know, it, it was a sort of political and administrative job. And in the last like 25 years, you still have the political and administrative job, but now there's this whole kind of instructional job married into that. And you have one person trying to do all of that. Um, in our leadership program, I asked this woman once, like, why she'd come to the leadership program. This is for people who want to become superintendents. And she said, I, I needed a break from being a school principal. Like, we were like, hey, we thought this was like a intensive program. And she's like, it, it is, but it's nothing like being a school principal. Uh, so uh, what, 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 do, what do you all think of the co-principal the co model? Well, Joel, I think, you know, I was a co-principal, right? I started the iSchool with, with a, a true co-principal. We were two, both titled principal, um, which I think is really different than the CEO principal role or the COO or, you know, the operations head and the instructional head. Like we were co's. Of course, we divvied stuff up between us, but um, it wasn't like one of us instructional and one of us was operational. We were both both. Um, and I really, it, it was, it was hard to get that through the system. Um, that was not something that the system wanted to support. But the other way to think about this is in our old teaching model of the teacher delivering instruction to the students, one person to these kids, it makes sense to have one person at the front of the room. You know, the whole system is hierarchical. And if we really want to rethink how students learn and we want to rethink schooling, we have to rethink leadership. And in our school, being able to model a, cooper a cooperative leadership practice that we worked really hard at um, was really important for our teachers to see as we were modeling for them the cooperative teaching practices that we wanted them to have to support the cooperative learning practices we wanted students to have. Devon, if you'd had a co-principal, like what would have happened when you just charismatically like outshined that person dramatically? Like would they have felt inferior? How would that have worked? I'm gonna take that one and I'm gonna say this. So I have five brothers and sisters, okay? Like in the pecking order, I'm the second to youngest. And so like, I always tell people, I'm like, things mostly didn't go my way, right? I'm like, I finally got a new pair of shoes when I was like 12 that weren't somebody else's and they're probably my sisters or something. And so I say all that to say, like, when I've had, when, I, when I've operated in my principalship, I've had four or five, when I was in the suburbs, I had like nine assistant principals. My job was to truly partner with them and, and, and co-create. I didn't, I mean, yeah, I was their evaluator, but I mean, their evaluation we did together, but like, I, I literally felt like I had this co-model, but five ways, nine ways, however many assistant principals I ever had, because I, it, like um, you have to have a thought partner. You have to be building capacity and talking about adaptive leadership as well as some technical things in there. And so I think like the way I've always, and you could talk to any one of them, most of them have gone on to become principals, if not central office people. Um, like we, we had this shared model, right? Like, I mean, so Devon made this much, you made this much, but really we shared all of these decisions and partnered together. That's why my teams were able to flourish. And this isn't me just tooting my own horn, but like it would be lonely to not have partners in the work to truly like lean on. Um, and I think that's, 
I think that's what it has to be. I think schools that that are truly that are truly doing great things and are affecting students and um, learning, like it's not just one person, but rather a team. And that's how I always operated. If I had four, awesome. If I had five assistants, cool. If I had nine, it was just more to divide up. But uh, that's how we operated. We wanted everyone to have touch everything, right? We didn't want to have these decisions in isolation because uh, when you're at the school level, Lisa knows this, you're you're doing, right? You're doing the work and like you're just doing it. There's not lots of time. And so you need help with that and you need partnership and it's lonely, right? So yeah, I think that was how I always operated in my principalships. Um, but I, I love it though. I think it's not um, a person, I guess. It's, 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 it's not the hero, it's the host, right? And I think that's the, that's the, the conditions that have to be created to do the work. Joel, when you and Sarah were researching your, your, your book and, and, and visiting so many schools, what, what did you notice about, about this question? Yeah, I never quite put it in the words that Eliza and Devon did, but I do think that um, the the symmetry principle is the key. That if if the the parallelism between what's happening among the adults and what you want to be having happening among the among the students, um, that I think of symmetry as both a natural property of organizations and something that you can use strategically. So it's a natural property of organizations in that like, it seemed almost to be like a natural law that in places where the administrators were trying really hard to control the teachers and control one another, the teachers were trying to control the students. And in the places where the students had more voice and agency, the teachers had more voice and agency. And um, smart leaders were using their professional learning time, their decision-making time, to demonstrate the kind of leadership and relationships that they uh, that they wanted, um, I wanted to tell a quick um, uh, story about the hero to host thing that Devon said. That comes from Margaret Wheatley, who wrote a great article called "From Hero to Host." And uh, this summer, last summer, I was coaching baseball and uh, had one season with a guy who was a fantastic coach, and it, it went great. And then. I started a second summer season and I was like, oh, I'm not going to put as much into this one. I'll just be the assistant coach, et cetera. And like, from my perspective, like the head guy was doing everything wrong. Like the, the, the former guy who I'd been working with was like fantastic. And the new guy, I was like, oh, what is this? And uh, so I had a choice. I came home to my wife and I was like, like, what do I do? Like, do I just like start like modeling, like what better practice looks like? Do I, uh, and I was like, hmm, like hero to host, hero to host. Like the kids don't need me to like be a hero. We just need to like gently, like, you know, start thinking about this another way. So there were like four coaches on the team. And I asked the head coach like, hey, can we just like set up a text thread to like just exchange some ideas? And we did. And it turned out like across the five of us, some good ideas emerged. And then like, you know, like gradually things started to move in a, a better direction. And I was I was very thankful for uh, for Margaret Wheatley. And my wife was very thankful for that because she didn't want me to like take over coaching another team because she wants to see me occasionally. <laughs> On a, a sort of deeper note, um, Devon, you brought up the the kind of second pandemic, the 
one of racial inequity and injustice we've seen in the country or that's become more visible, I guess, to folks who are not of color over the last seven years. I think that's really what happened, you know, it was sort of always there and always known and it just became more visible to the the broader populace uh, more recently. Um, uh, what, um, I guess I'm interested in like how that shift has, um, what that was like for you as a principal, um, these issues around Black Lives Matter becoming more salient um, and how that shifted some of the broader strategy in Madison for at least for some time. Um, yeah, could you just sort of tell us a little bit, um, I'll start with Devon and then move to Elisa, um, about how the equity movement kind of intersected with your work in Madison and going forward. Yeah, I think, I mean, it did a, I mean, a few things. The biggest thing I would say is our students were out leading and these, 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 these rallies and these movements in Madison. And, and it was just amazing to see them and their voice and their passions come out. And, and I always knew they were there, but I'm saying they weren't, they weren't just sitting on the sideline. There's one young lady who we, um, her mom sent me some pictures of her leading a rally of Black Lives Matter and, and to the Capitol. And we captured these and we made them huge. We put them in the hallways. I asked her, I put, asked permission from her parent and her. And she's like, oh, you can put me up so everybody can see me. I love that. And sweet young lady, um, I think she's a junior now. And so I'm going to tell you, like, just watching my students stand up and, and stand up in a time when, you know, they had experienced this, like people were, people were, uh, weren't sure where to be on this, but to watch our students be so bold and say, you know what, this is our lived reality. This is this is what's happening to us. You have to understand this was it, it pushed people to do some deep thinking, right? About what is change, what can change about our practice moving forward and how we design our curriculum. And I'm just gonna tell you like, they, they, there's no longer US history in Madison. They changed it to um, African-American experience, right? And, 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 and it just reflects that title. And this is just what it is. And I think this is a beautiful opportunity of what happens when things look differently. Um, and I think, you know, they made some policy change about um, implementing restorative and as, as the main lever, um, just like in Minneapolis where they, where they removed SROs, the school board in Madison decided to remove SROs as well. Um, but I'm gonna tell you, it was just amazing to then see like the equity work like everybody's lined up to be on the equity team. And I'm like, not everybody can be on the equity team, but I mean, I, I, we need some leaders. So we started breaking it up and called it relationships team. We called it the race team. And then we had different like uh, meetings and then we'd come back together. People were reading things that like, and these books had always been on the shelves, right? Like I remember there was um, an article about CRT and Gloria Ladson Billings and she laughs and she says it was NPR. And she says, I couldn't pay people. To, to, to say this word 20 years ago. She's like, it's for grad students. It's a theoretical framework. And um, I mean, this stuff had always, this, this work had always been there. These, this lived experience for my students, myself, had always been there, right? Um, it just brought it to light and watching what people do with it has been, has been the key thing. Um, and I'm gonna tell you, my students stepped up and they showed out, so. Elisa, how about you? Um more generally in terms of the equity movement as a white woman, like however you want to take it. Well, I do feel like this was one of the moments where I, um, 
I did want to be like really wish I was a principal to like engage with students around these issues. I, I think not to minimize what happened um, in the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, about a year ago and what's going on, but it's not just equity, right? Like our kids are deeply um, engaged with the environmental crisis that's going on. And they really care about, you know, the fact <laughs> that their planet is dying and and we we the adults did this um they are seeing an economic crisis uh many of our students that they've never seen before you know we always knew there were hungry people in new haven but now my kids luckily they're not hungry but we still see the lines wrapped around the food banks that we never saw before the pandemic and this political upheaval that's happened in our country in january 6th and sort of no one talking to the other side i mean i think they're there's all these societal, um, I don't know what the word is I want, but upheavalness posts. And, and I would say the other big thing I think our kids are feeling is they are in the midst of a mental health crisis that they see, like they see their peers struggling, they see the lack of supports. Um, I think our kids really are demanding that school really needs to be relevant. I mean, I think kids have been demanding that for a very long time. I think we are getting to a breaking point where they are checking out of the stuff that really feels like not useful and that there are huge urgent matters going on in our society and if we are not engaging them if schools are not engaging them then it's not okay and that none of these issues can be dealt with in a silo like it's not that there, there's an equity officer in a school and that's equity um or there's the sustainability officer it's we're all talking about equity all the time we're all talking about sustainability all the time we're all talking about mental health all the time so how should the place call school be different to get to the place, Elisa, that you're describing, to get to the learning that you're describing. How can we change that? You talked about relevance. How do we get to a more uh, relevant place? Well, that's a good question, right? <laughs> There's mean, probably yeah, a book think... in there, Joel. <laughs> Before you answer that one, can I ask another one that just picks directly off what you just said, and then you can, then I'll give you a minute to like think about the relevance question. Um, You've both been principals, like, how do you handle the politics question? Like, got any parents that like, you know, would disagree with some of the stances that you just outlined? And um, how do you, how do you, how do you manage that as a, as a school leader? Because my experience with my kids' schools are, they're just kind of like anodyne places. Like they, all the like the values are like caring or I'm not like against caring it's just like not a very political value you know like it, it um so like they just you know I went to a school that was like the day after the election in 2016 they were like we're all gonna wear the school color and I was like okay but like the, like life like earth-shattering things are happening here um which actually, like, despite the fact that the school was like wearing the school color and the classes, like all kinds of things were going on. Um, but um, so, yeah, anyway, how do, how do you handle that as a, as a principal? I think as principals, I mean, this is the, the conversation we're having right now, right? Do, as a society, do we think schools should be a place that are, that, that is vanilla? Or do we think schools should be a place where we really teach kids how to be critical thinkers and how to critically discuss 
these really complex issues. And that, and as a society, do we stand at opposite sides and only talk to our people? Or do we believe in this power of the engagement? So, I mean, look, I will say, I my success at a, as a principal was 100% due to the fact that every day I was like, if you don't like what I'm doing, fire me. And that I had the privilege of being able to say that and feel that. Um, and I don't, if I hadn't felt that, I don't know if I could have been as a good a principal as I was. Um, so I was willing to fight all of these battles all the time. Um, but I do feel, um, you know, to be relevant, <laughs> to answer Rod's question, like we, we do have to see schools as places that we don't offer kids um, a, a, a position that we, but we deeply engage with these complex ideas. And to think that teachers are not bringing their own beliefs into that is false, but we can teach kids to be critical thinkers and critical questioners and, and engage with, with fact. Yeah, I think um, all of that, and I think the thing too is when I when I led as a principal, and there were some people that were like scratch. I had one particular parent called me uh, called me about it. We had a long conversation, and here's how it goes: public school is public school, right? I mean, and that's that's the beauty, and that's where I choose to work. That's where I went to school, and I think that's um, I think that's key. Um, the other thing, though, too, is I always let parents know, like, I'm a dad and I run this place like I'd want my own daughter's principal to run this place um, with. And I, and I just throw it out there. Care, love, respect. If a kid needs a hug, let's get him a hug pre-pandemic. If a kid needs a sandwich, let's get him two, one to take home with him. If a kid needs something, it, like it's our job to figure out how um, to to make that work. And one parent said, you know, I think that actually is too much, but I respect you for doing it and your heart. And I was just like, thank you, I guess. I mean, you know, he said he didn't really agree with what I was doing, but he said I had a big heart. So I'm like, I'm gonna run with that, right? But I, I'm doing this as I would want my own child's principal to do exactly for my child. And I think if we if we look at our work that way, changes everything right you start thinking about your own kid and you start seeing your own kid's face on the kids right in front of you and how you might go the extra mile to help them prep for that test or whatever the case may be and you just you create those conditions i think the other thing is how has like home depot mcdonald's i'm trying to think where my kids work like the car dealership how have they mastered this idea of relevance um, cause this is where my kids are holding down two jobs. One young lady came back. She's like, I opened up my own boutique, my own shop. I do lashes and nails. I think the kid's a sophomore. And, um, she's like, I'm making, I'm making money. And I'm like, oh my God, we need to get you in business entrepreneurship. But like, she figured this out on her own and navigated it. And for the kids who had two jobs during the pandemic and our frontline workers, um, they saw the relevance there, right? From one student opening up their own boutique, their own shop. And then to the other students, like working at Home Depot and McDonald's, like they were able to see the, I got to do this for whatever reason that's motivating me, but the relevance is there. So how does school capitalize and complement and say, we're trying to prep you to do whatever your passions are. And I think that's, we have to ask them. We have to put it out there. We have to make it attractive. We have to um, go with their interests and we have to like partner community and as many people as we can. Um, I was in one school 
the other uh like a couple of weeks ago this principal has like everything in the like recording studio and he's got like um like a maker space space times 10 and then he has like a barber studio like with 20 chairs like it was just amazing to see like he's he's asking his kids what do they want to see and then helping them find a path to get there like cad design architecture um so on and so forth and i think that's like that's 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 it right how are we finding how are we partnering and making school relevant because it can very quickly become irrelevant again and we'll see what happens when when kids think school is irrelevant and even even us like if we thought something was irrelevant why would we why would we continue with it like a tv show that's it's i don't really see a connection to it i'm not going to watch it anymore this book has no connection to me i'm going to stop reading it right so it's like how do we how do we do that like other people successfully have. Thank you both for answering my question. <laughs> <laughs> what did we dodge, Giles? Or something? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, all right, Rod, you want to move to the lightning round? I, I think so. Uh, I know Elisa in particular has really been uh, focusing on, on, on the lightning round. I hope you're strong on your geology topics and your um, world history. Um, first question, um, and let's start with Devon, just to give Elise a little more time to think. Um, Devon, what's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong? I mean, is it timed or do mm -hmm. I have, can I, oh, sorry. You're, um, you're down four points already. <laughs> Dang, I didn't realize there was a score. What I win or something. Um, a lot of people think. Okay, like algebra. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just, I just, I just truly. Is there another approach? And I'm going to ask you just to quantify like 50 things for me, like in my day to day life. I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying. And I get it's how you get into Harvard, job. I get it. You got to have algebra before you can get to calculus. I understand it. I'm just saying. I'm. I'm gonna need. I'm gonna need some help, man. I just need to know like how algebra two and algebra three, how it all fits. So it's gotta throw it out there. Perfect. Melissa. Something that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong. I think um I think I sort of mentioned this before, but I think it's that the principal's role is to change the student experience where really the principal's role is to change the teacher's experience so that they will change the student experience. Rod, do you want to answer your own question? I, I, I think um, that we used to think that our, um, you, you know, that we used to, that there's something about quantity of work that kids need to produce that somehow connects to quality of work. And uh, those are two vastly different things. Whew, I passed that one. Um, what's one thing, and Alisa, you get to go first on this one. What's one thing that you wish policymakers understood that they do not? Um, honestly, I wish policymakers and the public understood how complicated education is. Um, when I was a principal, we were trying to come up with a scheduling system that was that was really driven by student need. Um, and we wanted to change our schedule every nine weeks um, and you know, meet the needs of all, all the kids in the school. And we couldn't figure out how to do it. And 
someone hooked us up with this guy who does the programming for airplanes and routing airplanes. Cause he was like, they're like, it's the same concept. And he looked at our problem and he said, this is impossible. Like you actually can't build a schedule. There's it's too, it, there's too many. And I sort of felt like this is the encapsulation. Everyone else says like, find the expert, they'll solve all of education's problems instead of like really acknowledging that this work is profoundly complicated. And it's not that educators aren't smart enough and aren't working hard enough. It's that it's really complicated and nuanced. Devon, something that you wish policymakers understood that they don't now that you're getting close to policymaking. Yeah, I think, um, <laughs> The, the people who know best are in the room, like, and, and they're seated at the table and they're students, they are principals, they are teachers, they are uh, community members. Uh, before we make these policies, um, I think it's important that we start there and recognize and acknowledge that. Like I would say acknowledgement is love. So like acknowledging that the people that are, that have the most knowledge are in the room and, and start there um, and not always somewhere else, right? Jal, over to you. What's something that that uh, you wish policymakers understood? Well, it's it's almost directly related to what Devon just said. You know, policymakers tend to think linearly. Like we're just gonna. It sounds all logical on paper. Like we're gonna set these standards and we're gonna, you know, put these policies in place and kids are gonna sort of like march from here to there. And uh, I just think the world just doesn't work like that. I think, you know, if you, like, if uh, everybody on this call has kids, and so, like, like, what do you do with your kids? Like, are all your kids going to be, like, equally good at everything? No, they're not. Uh, it's a fact. So, like, what, what do you do with that as a parent? If, if a kid is, like, particularly struggling at something that they're going to really need in life, you get them extra help and you push them to do the thing, even if they're not that excited about it, because you know that it's sort of centrally important to them. So yes, you would do some of that. But like most of what you do is you just sort of recognize like what kind of kids do you have? And then you try to help them grow into the best version of whatever that is. And you support them and you, when they fall down, you help them get up. And when they're excited about something, you give them an opportunity to do more of it. And so, like, I think that's the way that, like, human beings raise other human beings. And I think if we injected a little more of that spirit into schools, we would be in a lot better shape. And I think good teachers and principals already know that. It's just the policymakers who don't understand that. Cheers. Um, Devon, what's a uh, last question? This is for double or nothing. Um, another field or domain worth emulating. Where should we be looking for inspiration? Yeah, I think... Elementary kids like can solve most of the world's problems. I think we just have to listen to them. And I have an eight year old and I'm going to tell you, uh, it's not because of her dad, but like this kid, like her intuitiveness is like, I don't even, I'll, I mean, it's, it's through the roof. I think we, with young kids, we just truly have to listen to them and give them a space. They have a lot to offer. They, they have like a lot, a lot on many different subjects. And I think I think, again, like when I said in the last question, like they're at the table, they're in the room. I think we truly have to give younger students time and space and, and a voice, right? If we're looking to have a senior or sophomore, junior have a voice, we have to we have to help our, our young children recognize that they're it, that they know this stuff and we have to empower them. I'm just telling you, if you ever need any advice, I have an eight-year-old, 
I'll give you my number you can call me you can access her that way for some advice kid is smart like she she gets it Alisa not a field but I would say through you Rod and our work with the Canadian British Columbia districts like I feel like um we need to integrate some of the indigenous ways of knowing into our system and probably so I've become familiar with some of that through my work with you um in, in the Canadian districts but there are probably other ways of knowing um that I'm not yet familiar with but I think if we could look at these ways of knowing that have existed for for you know hundreds of years that have really um supported the development of powerful societies and communities and cultures that would support what we're doing in education and by leaving those voices out we are doing our system a huge disservice so many ways to see the world and so many ways to see our kids be successful in the world that uh, we'd be crazy to think that our nutty western factory driven model is the is the the right way here here Thank you both for an amazing uh, conversation. Uh, again, I I just wish our listeners would have been able to see your faces uh, <laughs> throughout the conversation. I hope no one on the screen plays a lot of poker. Um, <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, it was great, and uh, we we'd love to have you back. This is a, a a great you know group. I felt like the you know. I'm sure Devon, you feel this way like everywhere you go, but um, I felt like the, the, you know, the chemistry was good. So I, I hope we have an opportunity to, to do it again. Thank you all. This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, we were joined by Elisa Berger and Devon LaRosa. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>